John chapter number 19 this morning. And I'd like to take just a few moments and preach to you on a group of folks that were found at the foot of the cross. We could take weeks, and if the Lord gives us liberty to, we may do that, and look at the different folks that were at the cross. It's astounding to see all the different classes of people that were there at the cross. There was religious folks and there was reprobate folks. There was rich folks and there were beggars. Uh, you'll find there were men, there were women. There were people of great esteem and there were people that would have passed through this world unnoticed had God not recorded them in Scripture. But this morning I want to take a few moments and focus on one group that's found at the cross of Jesus Christ. Read with me verse number 16. The Bible says, Then delivered he him therefore unto them to be crucified. And they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two other with him, on either side one and Jesus in the midst. And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. This title then read many of the Jews, for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city. And it was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. Then said the chief priests of the Jews to Pilate, Write not the King of the Jews, but that he said, I'm the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Notice verse 23, the Bible says, Then the soldiers... When they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to every soldier apart, and also his coat. Now the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, which saith, they parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture they did cast lots. These things, therefore, the soldiers did. Let's pray together this morning. Heavenly Father, Lord, I believe as much this morning as I've ever believed that the Holy Ghost is moving and working in this place. I believe that there's not a person here by accident, but they've been divinely appointed to be here, and you by grace have saw them to this place. So, Lord, I pray that you'd help us with reverence, with vigilance, with care over our own souls, to be willing to examine ourselves in the light of Scripture. And, Father, to be surrendered and submissive to your Holy Spirit as he speaks to our hearts. Lord, you and you alone know the soul condition of each and every person in this room. In a group this size, it wouldn't be surprising to know that there's someone here in need of Calvary. But, Lord, only heaven knows, only you know. So, Father, we're not asking for our through our own energy to accomplish this, but through the wisdom and working of the Holy Spirit for you to take your word and apply it to hearts. Convict that one, Lord, that is lost without Christ and show them their need of Calvary. Father, we'll be sure to thank you. We love you. Lord, we praise you. We bless your name this morning. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, this morning, if God gives us liberty, we may go on a little bit further and read some more verses. But for right now, I want to take just a moment and preach to you about these soldiers. You know, it's easy. We read the Word of God, and we've read this gospel account, I'm sure, many times for the folks that are in this room. And it's easy sometimes to read it and read it and read it and miss the impact of what was taking place in the context 
of what is revealed to us. I mean, could you imagine what it would have meant to be there that day? In some ways, it was a most ordinary day, for there were many folks crucified in that part of the world. But in other ways, it was the most extraordinary of days, for never before and never since has the Son of God hung upon a cross. In some ways, it was the most ordinary of days for the priests were there in the temple preparing for the feast of unleavened bread and preparing for the Sabbath day as they had done scores of times, hundreds of times. But in other ways, it was a most extraordinary day for never before and never since has the temple veil rent from top to bottom. In a lot of ways, it was an ordinary day for the sun had come up and the sun would go down as it is done since God created this world and everything in it. It was a most extraordinary day because we find that in the midst of the day, a darkness shrouded the land that has never before or never since taken place. You see, sometimes it's a matter of perspective. And you'll find that there's some folks, when they come to the cross of Calvary, they meet it in a different way than other folks meet it. In fact, we'll find of the three groups of soldiers that are present here at Calvary, that all three of them met the cross of Christ in a different way. And as I read this passage, it stirs my soul to see that some meet the cross of Calvary with such complacency. Could you imagine literally sitting in the shadow of the cross? and caring nothing more than to gamble over a cloak. I mean, here's a group of men that are sat at the feet of the Son of God, crucified, evidently set forth among them. Here they are, and they are in the shadow of the Son of God, and they don't even know it. They don't even know it. But you know, as I read this passage, the great tragedy is I see a picture of a lot of church-going folks in this day that we live in. Now, I'm just going to be honest with you. I don't even know what to do this morning other than try to give you what God gave me the best as I know how. But can I tell you that the great tragedy is that our churches are full of folks that have sat under the shadow of the cross for 10 and 20 and 30 and 40 years but don't know the Savior that was crucified on it. The sad truth is our churches are full of folks that have sat there while the gospel was preached, while the Spirit of God was moving, while souls were being born again into the kingdom and family of God, have sat there unmoved and complacent. What is it that could cause folks to live in such a way? It astounds me sometimes. You know, I grew up, I grew up in church. I was a church kid. I mean, I grew up hearing the gospel preached every week. I heard it so much that when I did get born again, nobody had to lead me in a prayer. Nobody had to lead me with Scripture. I'm not dismissing that. I'm not disparaging that. I'm just merely saying I had heard it so much that I knew it. I could have led someone else before I was born again if I had needed to do it. I mean, I grew up as a church kid. I grew up in a Christian school. I heard the gospel day in. I heard it day out. And I can say that by the grace of God, and only by the grace of God, I was born again. But I could point you to hundreds of young people that grew up just like me that have never been born again. It's a great day, it's a great tragedy that we live in a day where there's so much confession without conviction and conversion. So much profession without possession. Uh, so much gospel being preached, and yet so many, uh, so few folks partaking in the grace of God. But that's the day that we live in. What's the reason for that? 
As I read this passage, I find three reasons that they could sit at the foot of the cross and walk away lost. Can I say, first off, it was because... Let me ask you this. Why were they there? Why were they there? What had brought them to the foot of the cross? Could I say, first off, it's because they were just performing a duty. Ain't no telling how many crucifixions that these soldiers have been a part of. Ain't no telling how many crosses they had sat at the foot of. And because they were just there doing it, because, listen now, it was their job. That's the only reason they were there. You know, there's lots of folks that come through those doors because that's just what they do. I told you, I was a church kid. I was raised in church. I I mean, there was no question in my home. No dispute, no debate. I, I remember growing up, uh, you know, we, we went church we went to started at, at 7 o'clock in the evening. They didn't love their folks like we do. You know, we start 6, so we don't, we don't want to interrupt your programs, your stories that come on. But, we, you know, I, I grew up in church. I started at 7 o'clock. And we get out. We had 30 minutes drive to get home. So we get out. We get home. Mom fix us a little bite to eat. We might get a little fish on the way home, a little Captain D's, and, and get home and eat. And we'd say, And then Mom and Dad, they'd settle in like bears to hibernate. It was Sunday afternoon. And if you're right with God, you nap on Sunday afternoon. Amen. That's just the way it works. And they'd settle in and they'd start napping. And me and my brother, my sister, she's up and gone, you know. But me and my brother, when I was little, we'd sit there and we'd watch that clock. And we'd watch it. And we'd watch three o'clock roll around. That was the halfway point, you know. And then four o'clock, four thirty, five o'clock. You see, we knew that if mom and dad wasn't up by 6 o'clock, we weren't going to church. And we'd sit and we'd watch, and we'd watch, and we'd watch. And son, let me tell you, like a Swiss clock, 6 o'clock would roll around, and up they'd be. We'd be headed to church. There was no debate. There was no discussion. In our home, we went to church. And yet I find that just going into a church house, that don't get you born again. And there's lots of folks, now listen to me, I'm going to try to say this, this bit of truth with as much love as I can. There's folks that go to church because that's what they've always done, that's their duty. There's, cho- cho- there's folks that occupy offices, there's folks that, that teach Sunday school classes, there's folks uh, that have been a part of a church their whole life, seated at the foot of the cross, but they've never met the Savior. Why? They're performing a duty. You see... To those soldiers, this cross was the same as every cross. And to a lot of these church folks, this Sunday is the same as every Sunday. Every Sunday before and every Sunday after. And they've never had a time when they've knelt at the cross of Calvary. A sinner and called upon Christ to forgive them and save them. I see it was because they were performing a duty. Can I give you a second thing? I see it was because they were preoccupied with temporal things. I mean, could you imagine... We get awful judgmental when we read the Word of God. You know that? We get awful ju- And I don't mean judging somebody else because they're living in sin. I-, I mean, we get judgmental of Bible characters. And sometimes, you know, we read the Bible and we think, I wouldn't be that way. Oh, sure you would. You'd be that way. And you can imagine as they're sitting, here they are in the shadow of Jesus. And they're more worried about the coat that he was wearing. But, you know, I find lots of folks that while they're performing that duty... 
and they're just doing their, their quote-unquote Christian responsibility. All they do is spend their whole life trying to claw and trying to dig and trying to advance further, just get that nicer home, that nicer car, just try to get that nicer set of clothes, just try to get the better job and the bigger paycheck and the bigger bank account. All the while, their soul hangs in the balance because they're preoccupied with temporal things. I mean, they're, they're right in front of the Son of God, and all they're worried about is his coat and his vestment, vestige. All they're worried about is the clothes and the temporal things. But now let me ask you something. How sad is it that you've got folks that have been raised in the shadow of the cross that will sit there and say, one of these days I'm going to serve God once I get everything worked out. Brother, you may not have one of those days. You may have to take the day that God's blessed you with. Because the truth of the matter is, and some of our older folks can testify to this, there is never a convenient time to serve Jesus Christ. There'll always be more work, more responsibility, more obligation. If you won't serve Him now, chances are you won't ever serve Him. Because you're too preoccupied with things that are going to burn up one of these days. I've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Hauler with a luggage rack. Have you? One of these days, it'll all burn up and be gone. And yet seated at the feet of the most beautiful, most immaculate, seated at the feet of the Son of God, the most precious commodity that heaven ever contained, the most valuable gift that God ever gave, uh, the, most, uh, the most precious thing that we can ever possess. They're worried about these temporal things. Temporal things. I tell you, friend, we better get our priorities straight because Jesus is coming soon. If we want to do anything for Him, we better get our heads straight about this thing of serving God. We find that they were preoccupied with possession. Can I give you one, one other thing? I say one other thing, and you don't know whether I'm going to close or not. I love that suspense. I see that they were playing games at the foot of the cross. We see they were performing a duty like they had performed a hundred times. Doing it out of habit, preoccupied with, with temporal things, with possessions, with things that would burn up. But then the Bible teaches us that they had parted his garments, but his vesture they could not part. It was woven from the top throughout, and it was one piece. So you know what they said? They said, let's gamble over it. Let's roll the dice. Let's throw the sticks. Let's play the hands of cards. Let's gamble and see who turns out with it. Oh, friend, it sends chills to my very soul to see the picture of what we have today. You know, I, I see that his coats and his, his cloak, they were just temporal things. We're aware of that. But do you know that it's very significant that it was woven all throughout in one piece? That wasn't no accident, friend. Much uh, like the coat of many colors that Joseph had once wore, this pictured for us the perfect and immaculate righteousness of Jesus Christ. And here they were gambling with it. You know, there's lots of folks. Listen now, I'm going to give this to you as straight American hillbilly as I can. There's lots of folks going to die and go to hell because they're playing games with God. The Spirit of God comes and convicts them, shows them their need of Calvary. And they say, some other day, some other day, some other day. 
Some of them even, you know, no, we don't, we don't ever argue. I, they talk about Baptists arguing over the color of the carpet, over the color of, uh, of the curtains, the, the, the paint that they put on. Can I tell you when Baptists argue the most? It's during invitation time. And they're not fussing with one another. They're arguing with the Holy Ghost, who has just spent the entire sermon nailing them to the wall and showing them what it is in their life that's missing. And the whole time they'll say, Lord, you're right. You're right, Lord. You're right. God, I need it. Yes, you're right, Lord. And then invitation time comes. I like what Brother Richard said. You don't have to wait for invitation. If you feel like you've got business to do with God, you need to do it right now. Jesus may come back before we ever hit a note on that piano. You better get it done right now. But when the invitation time comes, then we start backpedaling. You know I'm telling the truth this morning. You be honest now. You know I'm telling the truth. And where we've agreed with the Holy Spirit of God and the Word of God, all service, now all of a sudden, it ain't about us. It's, Lord, I can, I can settle it from here. I'm convinced that if you have an argument with the Lord over going to the altar, you need to be at the altar. You say, can folks deal with God from the pew? Yeah, sure. I, I, you can deal with God from anywhere. But if God wants you at that altar and you won't go to the altar, then you've got a wedge of disobedience in your life and something else that needs to be dealt with. I believe if God said go, I'd just go. I believe if God said kneel, I'd just kneel. I I believe if I couldn't find any way, if I couldn't figure out a way, I'd do whatever I could to be obedient to the Lord and to try to get things settled and worked out in my heart. I see they were playing games, just playing games. Just sitting there like they had done a hundred times before. Some meet the cross of Christ with complacency. But I want to show you a second soldier. I told you I didn't know if we'd go on, but the Lord said it was okay. Look with me down a little bit further in our passage and look at verse 31. The Bible says the Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation that the bodies should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath was an high day, besought Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then came the soldiers and break the legs of the first and of the other which was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they break not his legs. Look at verse 34. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came there out blood and water. I see that some folks meet the cross of Christ with complacency, but I meet other folks that have met the cross of Christ with contempt. You know, the cross is still an offensive thing to those that think they're too good to need a Savior. You remember what Paul said in the book of Galatians when he talked about how he said, if I preach circumcision, why then am I persecuted? The offense of the cross has ceased. You know what he was saying? He was saying, if men could get to heaven by their good works, and if I preach that to them, they wouldn't be upset at me. He said, the whole reason that I'm being persecuted is because I preach the cross of Christ, Him crucified, the sinner helpless and hopeless, the Savior perfect and sinless and powerful and mighty to save. I I, I don't preach a work salvation through baptism or church membership or the keeping of the law, but I preach that the sinner is totally without help before God except Jesus Christ help him. I, I preach that the only way that he'll ever get born again is to bow his head, to bend his knee, and to call on the Savior, not of his own good works, lest any man should boast. You see, where folks still think they can get there on their own good works, the cross is an offensive thing. 
we, we preach so much to the down and out that we forget about the up and in. Isn't that right? We preach so much to the, to the drunkards and to the drug addicts and to the prostitutes. And listen, we ought to preach to that kind. I'm not, I'm not saying we shouldn't, but we forget about the religious lost folk. And there's a whole lot of them. I, I noticed two things about what he did. I'm giving you a break. There's only two here. I noticed that first off, this was a vengeful act. The Bible says the soldier knew already that he was dead. But you know what he wanted to do? He wanted to strike some sort of blow against the crucified Lord. You know, there's lots of folks, and this really gets at, 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 the, at the crisis of the matter, at the center of the matter. You know what people have a problem with in the day we live in? People don't, people don't have a problem with Jesus in a manger. Oh, I, I know, we think, we, we get distracted sometimes, you know. Well, we think uh, some, some infidel out there that, that gets a petition going around or files a suit against some small town country courthouse that wants the nativity scene on the lawn, we think that's where the battle's at. But friend, that's not really where the battle's at. Uh, Christmas is the most commercialized of all holidays. Listen, this world is not afraid of Jesus in a manger. That doesn't bother them. They make a good buck off Jesus in a manger. Could I say that this world don't have a problem with Jesus as a miracle worker? You'll find it often spoken of the great, wonderful things that he's done. I, I was seeing on the... Oh, <laughs> just jump on in, Toby, both feet. I, I heard on the news where they're saying that Knoxville had its first miracle this past week. Did you hear that? That's what the, the bishop said. The diocese, Catholic Church is investigating it. They've had their first miracle. I was telling a group of folks Friday. By the way, that fellow claims that that miracle was performed because he prayed to a dead saint. Praying to anyone other than God the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ is entirely unscriptural. Nobody else died for your sins. Nobody else resurrected in power and in glory. Nobody else is seated in the right hand of the throne of God. Nobody else ever liveth to make intercession for you. Nobody else has a throne room of grace. Nobody else has given you boldness and access by faith. Nobody else has given you an anchor that holds within the veil and a place to go to get help and grace in the time of need. Oh, no! No Catholic saint has done that for you. The blessed Son of God has done that for you. But he said, you know, he said, I prayed to this dead saint and, and, and miracles happen and, and the big boys with the pointy hats are checking it out. And uh, I, I told some folks, you know, they're just talking to the wrong folks. If they'd come over to Wall Ridge Road, I could have told them about half a dozen miracles in the past week or two. Yeah. And I, friend, and I don't just mean, oh, well, little, you know, little Bobby or Susie, you know, read their Bible or this. I'm talking about where God has intervened with the natural world and showed himself mighty among his people. I believe in a miracle-working God, but this world don't have a problem with Jesus as a miracle worker. Some people say, well, they have a problem with Him hanging on a cross. No, not entirely. Not entirely. I know they say it's Good Friday. There ain't nothing good about that Friday. He was in the grave on that Friday, but they call it Good Friday. And most of you all, you'll get, you know, unless you work retail or something, you'll get the day off. And, and you'll find that the story of Christ on the cross in, in, in some ways does not bother this world. Go down to the hospitals that are owned by the Catholics and you'll find a picture uh, or, or a, a, let me call it what it is, you'll find an idol of him hanging upon a cross in just about every room. No, the world don't have a problem with that. You say, oh, I know what they've got a problem with. 
they got a problem with Jesus raised from the dead. That's what they got. No, they don't have a problem with it. They make a killing off of peeps and chocolate eggs and chocolate bunnies every year. In fact, you'll find now the public schools, they can't say they're taking Easter break. They have to call it spring break so we don't hurt nobody's poor widow feelings. But the truth of the matter is this world really don't have that big a problem with Easter. Can I tell you what they have a problem with? That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess. They don't have problem with a cradle. They don't have problem with a cross. It's the crown that this world doesn't like. It's his authority. This fellow said, look at him now, weak and pitiful. I'll strike a blow while he can't do anything in return. It's a vengeful act. He hated the authority of Christ. But can I, can I give you a second thing? I like this. Even though it was a vengeful act, it was a futile act. Now, I understand theological implications of it. I understand blood and water poured out. We can talk about that all day if you want to. But what I find is this. Christ was already dead. He had already said it is finished. This soldier's act of defiance did not change anything in the way of Christ's authority. Can I let you in on a little secret? You can shake your fist at God all you want. You may do it out in the open or you may do it in your heart because you're afraid to do it in front of church folk. But you can shake your fist at God all you want. But that's not going to knock Him off His throne. You can be angry all you want. You can curse God's name all that you want. But that won't stop Him from ruling and reigning. It was a futile act. But can I give you a little hope? And I'll close with that. That's how any good public speaker will tell you that, you know. You always, you always end with something upbeat. That way, that way folks come back. Amen. Miss Kathy was supposed to thank me because I preached nice on Wednesday and she never did. She always says I'm preaching mean and then I preached nice on Wednesday. I didn't even get thanked for it. Amen. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 27. I see that some meet the cross with complacency. Just performing duties, playing games and gambling with their soul's salvation. I see some folks meet the cross with contempt, shaking their fist at God and proving to Him that He can't rule them. And it won't change that their eternal destiny is a devil's hell. But I want you to read with me in Matthew 27. Look at verse number 50. The Bible says Jesus, when He had cried again, with a loud voice yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent. And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose, and came out of the graves after His resurrection, and went into the holy city, and appeared unto many. Now when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. It breaks my heart to know that some will meet the cross of Christ with complacency. Like the lepers in the Old Testament, they'll sit here till they die, never having a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ because they refuse to bow their knee. It breaks my heart that some meet the cross of Christ with such contempt that they think that their defiance will somehow unseat Him from His throne. But can I say that I thank the Lord in heaven that though some meet the cross with complacency and some meet it with contempt, that there are a few that meet the cross with conviction. What do we find about this man? Well, I want you to notice first off his concentration. What was it 
that changed? What, what was different about him from the others? I mean, many soldiers were present that day. Why was it that this centurion, that this man was born again? What was different with him? I think we find it in our verse. Look with me. I, I don't want to misquote it. Look with me down at verse number 54. Now, when the centurion and they that were with him, notice these next two words, watching Jesus. That's what made the difference in his life. You see, while everyone else was watching the cloaks and the garments and the vestures, while everyone else was listening to the cries of the unrepentant and the reprobate, while everyone else was focused on the wonders that were going on, this man was watching Jesus. And that's what made the difference. You say, when does a fellow get born again? A fellow gets born again when he turns his eyes off everything else and he looks to Jesus Christ. <laughs> Let me tell you something. If you listen to what this world says, they'll have your head spinning. And I'm not opposed to, to education, to in, intelligence. You'd think it to hear me preach, but I'm not, I promise you. I've got mountains full of theological books. I, I'm not, I've got commentaries. I've got lexicons. I've got dictionaries. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm not opposed to it. But can I say that we'd all do good if we'd just try to get our eyes on Jesus a little more. And, and, and you can listen to all the debates. It's funny. You know, Facebook has turned the world into a big argument. Am I right? And, uh, you know, you'll get on, you'll listen to these folks that debate and fuss and feud back and forth on Facebook. You'll, they'll have this video, watch this video of this atheist. No, watch this video of this Christian apologist. Uh, you know, well, read this and read that. And it'll get your head spinning. You say, preacher, how do I know? What do I do? How do I get saved? Oh, dear sinner, if you'll just turn your eyes on the crucified Son of God, look to Him, Him alone. Don't trust in your logic. Don't trust in your church. Don't trust in your baptism. Don't trust in your heritage. But look only to Jesus Christ and you'll find Him sufficient for salvation. His concentration. He wasn't looking at everything else. He just looked to Jesus. It breaks my... You know, there's, it, it's sad. Gandhi once said, I probably would have become a Christian if I'd never met one. That's what he said. Of course, he said a lot of stupid things, but, but that was one of the things that he said. And the sad truth is there will be many that will die and go to hell because of we have not been the testimony that we need to be. But at the end of the day, it's upon every man to look only unto Jesus. At the end of the day, the sinner will always find an excuse until his will is broken, until the dependence upon himself is shattered, until he sees himself as lost and undone. He'll always find an excuse. But when he'll turn an eye to the crucified Lord, when he'll look upon Calvary and see himself as on that cross and see himself and his sins there and the Son of God as sufficient to save him, then and only then will he find himself to be at the foot of Jesus. I want you to notice not only his concentration, but notice his conviction. The Bible says he greatly feared. He greatly feared. You say, preacher, is conviction when folks cry a lot? No. No, I can hit you in the head with a hammer. You cry a lot. That don't mean it's conviction. You say, oh, you know, preacher, uh, uh, does conviction mean that we, we weep and we wail? And, and I've seen conviction manifest in that way or repentance manifest in that way. But we find that conviction at its very heart is the convincing of ourselves of our sin. When God makes us to realize that what He says about us is correct and right and that we're lost, 
this man had cause to fear. Imagine how he felt. Here he is, and he realizes this is the Son of God. And he looks down in his hand, and he sees the hammer that was used to nail him there. Could you imagine how it must have felt? We don't know the, the, the degree of involvement that this man may have had. Maybe he was the one that placed the crown of thorns. Maybe he was the one that had held and lashed the whip. Maybe he was the one that had driven the nail. We do not know, but certainly a man this close to the cross must have had something to do with putting Christ upon it. And now in this moment when God reveals to him that Jesus is the Son of God, he sees things for what they are. He says, oh, it was me that put him on the cross. It was me that put him on the cross. But I find for the sinner that it's no different today. When we come to the realization that it was we that put him on the cross. Your sins, my sins. It gives us cause to greatly fear. It gives us cause to recognize the weight of the situation And I'll tell you why lots of folks will sit under the shadow of the cross and die and go to a devil's hell. It's because they spend all their time thinking it was everybody else. It wasn't me. My sins, they're not all that bad. My unrighteousness, it's not all uh, that unrighteous. The things that I do wrong, oh yes, they may be wrong, but so many others are doing so much more. But I find that this man at the foot of the cross wasn't paying attention to what other people had done. He wasn't looking for the hammer in other folks' hands. But when he realized the way to the situation, he greatly feared, for he said, it's been me that's done this. It's been me that's crucified him. It's been me that's put him on this cross. And I'll tell you the point when a sinner comes to know the Savior is when he'll come to the place where he says, it was me that put him on the cross. My sins put him up there. He's dying for me. The Bible says he tasted death for what? For every man. That's you. That's me. We see his conviction. I'll close with this. We see his confession. Truly, this was the Son of God. Oh, in those simple statements. Oh, in that, in, that, in that simple quick word. And I'm not presuming to know the thoughts and intents of this man's heart, but there are some things that we can gather from it. We can gather that he acknowledged the deity of Jesus Christ. We can gather that he acknowledged the substitutionary sacrifice. He said, this is the Son of God, the one that's been sent in my place and yours. He recognized. You know what it says in in Luke's account? Christ said, it is finished. And in Luke's account it says, and when he heard this, when he heard this, he said, truly this was a righteous man. He recognized the sinlessness. This is a righteous man. He recognized, oh, listen, when he heard this, he recognized and confessed Christ as sufficient for his redemption. What did he hear? He heard, it is finished. There's lots of folks spending all their time trying to make their own way to heaven. Lots of folks spending all their time trying to get there. And it's no wonder because every religion religion in the world, that's their mantra. Do this, do that, do this, do that. Work, work, work. Strive a little. Persevere a little. Work, work, work. Do, do, do. 
But only at the cross of Calvary do we find the word done. Only at the cross of Calvary do we find the work finished. If you're here today and you'd say, Preacher, I'm one of those groups. Maybe you are like the complacent ones that have grown up in church. You know the language. You know how to fool folks. But this morning you found yourself at the foot of the cross and face to face with your eternal state. Can I say that today you don't have to leave here lost. You don't have to leave here playing games. You can come and be born again. Maybe you're here and in your heart of heart. Oh, I know we're Sunday morning church folks, you know. But in your heart of hearts, you've shook your fist at God. In your heart of hearts, you've told him, you won't rule me. We have no king but Caesar. We will not have this man to rule over us, was what the Jews had said. And maybe you, like them, have shaken your fist at God. Can I say that you shake it all you want, but it won't change things. He's still the Lord, and you're still lost, and you still need Calvary. Or maybe you're here today, and you see yourself as this centurion. Maybe you can remember that time in your life. Oh, bless his name. Maybe you can remember that time in your life when you looked down and saw the hammer in your hand. Maybe you can remember the time that you looked up and saw your nails had put them there. And you'd just like to take a moment and thank the Lord for what he's done in saving you and forgiving you.